Great to see you. Fourth of July weekend. You glad you're here? All right. You love your country? All right. So do I. Yeah, we live in the best country in the world, and uh, um, it is the best in the world, and, and you maybe don't appreciate that fully until you go travel around some other countries, and then you'll, you'll see that more obviously. So glad you're here. We're in a series called Seven Churches of Revelation, and we're in week two. We started that last week. And, and remember, we're talking about the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. And that happened down here in Israel. As far as we know, Jesus never left Israel, except for when he was a baby taken to Egypt. But, uh, and so he's here. John's there. And now it's 95 A.D. The New Testament has been written, except for Revelation. John is the last apostle that's alive. The other ones have all been executed for their faith. And so he, John, hasn't been executed, but he's been exiled. Uh, and this is called Asia Minor, but specifically in modern terms, this is Turkey. He was ministering up here, partly in Ephesus. He was exiled to a little bitty island, and we're going to zoom in on that, called Patmos in the Algean Sea. So he's in exile for his faith. He writes Revelation. It's the last book of the New Testament. The rest of it's already been written. And he addresses seven churches. It's not all the churches, but seven specific churches uh, that are on the mainland of Turkey. And he's right here off the coast. And those seven churches are here. The seven churches are actually part of a postal route that went in a clockwise fashion like this. And Ephesus first, and that's how they're ordered in the book. And so we already did Ephesus last week, and now the next church that's addressed at the beginning of Revelation is the church of Smyrna. So that happens next, and then that's what we're talking about today. Smyrna is only 35 miles, again we're zoomed in here, only 35 miles north of Ephesus and that we talked about last time. All right, so the church of Smyrna, I want to tell you a little bit about the city. Uh, the city was a port city, a lot like Ephesus. The difference was Smyrna had a great harbor, a nice deep harbor, a great port uh, for the ships to wait before they came in, where Ephesus didn't. Ephesus had a problem where it was a little bit up a river. The river kept filling up with silt. They kept moving the city to make that work, and that's why there's no city there today. But in Smyrna, there is a city there today. And actually, you can go see the ruins of Smyrna. It's right next to a city in Turkey called Izmir. And so you can see that kind of in the background, these ruins. Most of them are sort of one level down because uh, over the years, as uh, things were rebuilt, it's kind of raised the ground level. And Smyrna was known for its beauty, its paved streets. Uh, it was the jewel of Asia. A lot of people called it back then. Uh, Well-paved streets right on the outskirts of the city was a hill. And then around, sort of halfway up that hill, were several state buildings and pagan temples that were spaced out in a nice orderly way where it looked kind of like a necklace around the hill, or they actually called it the crown of Smyrna. And so that's how uh, that was known. And uh, in Smyrna, 
emperor worship was key. Smyrna was a city because of its location. Um, it had always been loyal to Rome. And that's kind of where east meets west. So a lot of times there were conflicts in that region. But this town of Smyrna, this port city, was always loyal to Rome. As a matter of fact, uh, in 26 AD, during the ministry of Christ, Smyrna was rewarded for their loyalty in that over all the other cities in Asia, they were picked to build a temple to the emperor, uh, which they did. And so they were big on loyalty. Uh, an emperor, Domitian, he required that emperor worship was mandatory. And so during 95 AD, you have to worship the emperor, especially in a place like Smyrna. Every year you have to say, Caesar is Lord, and then also uh, sacrifice, put uh, some incense on his altar. And so putting that incense on the altar, then you would get a certificate. And that was kind of like a, a certificate of loyalty. So people knew you were loyal, were loyal to the emperor because you worshipped him. And then you were a good citizen that way. And so the problem with that is Christians did not do this. And failure to do this was death. But a lot of times people wouldn't necessarily know. Somebody didn't do it unless they were asked. And so Christians didn't, so Smyrna became one of the most dangerous places for Christians to live at this time in history. And so we're going to get back to Revelation where we were. That's Revelation chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 8 today. And so again, this is Jesus dictating to John a message. And then John is writing this. And he's got seven representatives of these churches, and he's making them each a copy that they'll distribute. And then within Revelation, at the beginning of Revelation, each church is addressed, and they're addressed formally, Jesus to you. You know, kind of a deal like we talked about how letters were back then. It's like a letter within a letter. And so, and to the angel or messenger of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead... And has come to life, says this, and then the, the body of that little section of message. Which, by the way, is the shortest message of all the, of all the churches. So, but this is kind of interesting. It says, the first and last who is dead. Because it starts out presenting the entire Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God existing eternally in three persons. But specifically, it's Jesus, and we know that, who was dead. And it's going to become obvious why Jesus describes himself this way as we get further into this text today because he actually describes himself a little bit differently as he introduces each individual church. So that's kind of what's happening. And, and remember, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be tortured to death. And just by way of reminder, another thing that sticks out about Smyrna, seven churches are addressed Five of them are corrected for something that they've done wrong or something they could do better. But two churches were not. Smyrna is one of the churches that were not corrected. So Jesus' words to them through John is delivered by their pastors and says this, and then he starts with his message. It starts this way. I know your tribulation. Tribulation, before we even get to that, tribulation... Well, the word means 
pressure. And we believe that that word came from the way they would sometimes torture people is they would lay them down and then put heavy rocks or weights on their chest where it became hard to breathe. And then if they wouldn't do what they want them to do, they put another weight on. If they didn't do what they want to do, they put another weight on. So it's pressure, but in this context, we know sometimes it's used of persecution, tribulation as in persecution, and that's what's mentioned here. But as we just look at these first four words, this is Jesus writing to a church saying, his church, and he's saying, I know your persecution. Right there, that can bring up all kinds of questions for us. For example, well, if this is a good church, why would God allow? Why would they even be persecuted? Well, there's two different levels of answer that why are, people, why are Christians persecuted? Because a lot of people hate God. I mean, that's, that's that level. But on a deeper level, well, yeah, we get that. But why would God allow, since God is sovereign, why would God allow for his church to be persecuted? Why? Well, there's several answers to that, and it really is wrapped up in the sovereignty of God. Suffering and persecution can sometimes bring benefits to the Christian. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but... uh, Persecution can also cause us to be a stronger witness to non-believers around us. For example, here's what uh, Paul said to the Romans. He said, not only this, but we also exult or have joy or excited in our tribulations, persecution, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance... Proven character, and proven character, hope. And he continues, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so here's Paul saying, look, there are reasons that God allows tribulation in our life because sometimes it builds in us character traits that make us more effective Believers are more effective by God. Suffering can bring benefits to believers. But back to our text. So he says, I know your tribulation, and then he continues, and your poverty, but you are rich. So, And this is a little interesting to us because Smyrna was actually a rich city because it had this nice port and harbor. Very rich city. But here... The believers are not rich, and there's really two things going on there. Generally, it's harder for believers to do business in the marketplace when people realize that they're Christians, because if they're Christians, they know they don't have this certificate of loyalty, and so their loyalty, uh, their patriotism is questioned, so a lot of people don't want to do business. But here, scholars believe that something has happened right before 95 AD when John is writing this. Something's happened to the people, the Christians in Smyrna. The speculation is is that as they weren't seen as loyal, there were some mobs that have looted them and they've lost their material possessions and that's caused a financial hardship on them. That seems to be what's what's happening here. So he says, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. What's he talking about? That we're rich 
spiritually. And so we're reminded that even if we live a long life like John is living, even if, if we live a long life, we know that, hey, that time in our life is just a, a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And in eternity, we are rich. We have joy with God forever. We experience Him in heaven forever. We know that's coming. So anything that we have now or anything that we have to do without as far as possessions is nothing because we know we'll have everything we need in abundance for eternity after we die. And so that's what Jesus is bringing up. And so they're truly rich. And by the way, so if you're a believer here, you're rich spiritually. All your needs will be taken care of. We... we, can't even imagine the splendor that we'll have in the afterlife, but this is what God has guaranteed us. But, but here's another thing. If you're sitting here today, well, you're rich financially too. Because if you're sitting here, you are in the top 5% of the richest people in the world. We keep forgetting here in America that most people in the world live on about $6 a day. That's 30 bucks a week, a little more than that. I guess my math was off. You know what I mean. But anyway, six, <laughs> six bucks a day is, is all that we're, we're living on, roughly. You know, I won't try to do any more math for you. We're all rich. We're rich according to the world standards today, but we're also rich spiritually, which is even better. We're rich both ways. And really, when we think about that, you know, that's basically because we're in this country. You know, it's not because we're so smart, although Christians should work hard. It's because we have opportunities, because we live in America. And so we're rich. And uh, the question is, are we thankful? Do we, do we acknowledge God with, with what we have? Are we trying to use it for him or leverage our resources for God's kingdom? Okay, so their poverty was because of persecution. But also, there's something else that he's going to add to this in verse 9. He says, So I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue... Of Satan. Now, this blasphemy is a very strong word in the Greek, but it means slander. It's just a way stronger word for slander. So he says, Hey, I know your tribulation. I, I know you're persecuted. I know your poverty. That's a result of that. And the blasphemy, the slander by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So they are slandered by Jewish people. And And we know what's going on is Smyrna, the Christians there, not only faced persecution from pagans and persecution from emperor worshipers, but also from non-Christian Jews. And because this is worded this way, we know why are the Jews in an uproar? Because a lot of these Christians are converted Jews. So now the people at the synagogue, they're not liking this, and so there's a lot of opposition. But the way this is said, who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, 
That is some strong wording, shocking, because he's basically saying, hey, those Jews in Smyrna who kept on rejecting me and didn't convert, they're just as much Satan followers as the pagan idol worshipers all around them in that town. It's tough stuff. And when we see this word synagogue, remember, it's a word like church. A lot of times when we hear the word church or synagogue, we think building, and it applies that way. But primarily what it means is the people in the church. When we talk about Grace Community Church, it's the building Grace Community Church, but more importantly, it's us, the people of Grace Community. Same way with a synagogue. A synagogue is a building, but more importantly, a synagogue is a group of Jewish believers who practice Judaism. And so, and Jesus spent plenty of time in synagogues. So, but here's what Jesus is saying. You claim to be God's people, these Jewish people that are left in the synagogue. They claim to be God's people. They claim to be my people, but they're not because they've rejected their Messiah. And he says they're not being true Jews. They're actually following Satan because of that. And so we know from this text, but also we know from history, that these Jewish people, and, and the other pagans too, they're quick to criticize Christians and condemn Christians. Um, and so that brings the persecution. For example, we know in the first century, from historical documents, that the Christians at this time, they were accused of, of three things, for example. They were accused of cannibalism, which was a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. You know, when we say, hey, we're taking the bread and the cup, and the cup, this juice, represents Jesus' blood. Well, they took that and said, hey, they're guilty of cannibalism. Also, for, for causing conflict in families, because as the message of Christ spread to pagan areas, a lot of times one spouse would convert and the other spouse wouldn't. And so that would bring in a lot of awkwardness. The Christian spouse would no longer want to participate in pagan rituals. And so that brought conflict. So that's the second thing. And then the other thing that we've already hinted at, which was political disloyalty. Oh, they're Christians. That means they're not, they're not loyal to Rome because they won't say that Caesar is God or Caesar is Lord. And so actually over the next six years, there's ample historical evidence of the Jewish hostility to Christianity. Remember, a lot of Jewish people became believers, but those that didn't sometimes were very hostile to Christians. How we know about this in Smyrna is that during this time, there was a guy, he's called a church father, but he's not in the Bible. His name is Polycarp. I mean, if you ever heard Polycarp, you can't forget that. Anybody hear that name, Polycarp? All right, so he's this ancient church father who was about 26 years old in Smyrna, when John wrote Revelation in 95 AD. And people like Polycarp, they're kind of interesting because they bridge the gap from first century apostles to second century believers. So Polycarp, he not only met several apostles and sat under their teaching, and one of those was John, but not only that, he had met, he had met several people who passed through this way who had seen the risen Christ. And so that was kind of cool. And so Polycarp was a believer. He lived in Smyrna. But when he, and we have documentation on this historically, not in the Bible, just his, 
historical, that when he was 86, which that, this now puts him in mid-second century, he's still alive. He's 86 years old, and the Jewish people accuse him of not being a loyal Roman because he won't say Caesar is Lord and he won't take a bit of incense and put it on, burn it on the altar to Caesar. So because of that, the proconsul, the magistrates, they go out to get him. He actually lives on the edge of town. They go get him. 86 is, you know, is old by ancient standards. Back then, people didn't live as long as they do today. He's 86 years old. They actually invited him up into the carriage to drive him back into town. And as they're going in, they're, you know, they're like, we don't want to kill this guy. He's a nice guy. So they're saying, what's the harm? All you have to do is just say, Caesar's Lord. And then take a pinch of incense and stick it on the altar and you can live. And he says, no. No, I won't do that. And so he actually is burned at the stake in mid-second century. And again, it's documented that that was because Jewish people at the time were making these accusations, which were true, against him. So Jesus mentions their persecution and their poverty and their slander against them. And then he continues in the next verse, verse 10. He says, Jesus is still talking to this persecuted church. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So the first thing he's saying, hey, you Christians in Smyrna, you're going to, be per- you're going to continue to be persecuted. First thing he says, hey, do not be afraid of that. Stop being afraid is sort of the tense of it. And stop being apprehensive. Stop fearing that persecution is going to increase. And, and what's the why behind that? Because people cannot rob us of what God has given us, eternal life in him. It's the greatest gift. And then there's a curious statement, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. And so a lot of, because they're going to be tested, this is what tribulation does to us, persecution. It proves whether we're of their faith or not. And then this 10 days. A lot of scholars are trying to figure out, hey, this 10 days, is that just representative? Is that you know, some, some different language to mean something else? They've looked all through history to try to figure this out. Could it mean 10 years, or what could it mean? But I think the best, it's best just to take this as 10 literal days. He's telling them, hey, you're being persecuted. Do not fear. It's going to get worse, and it's going to be especially bad for a 10-day period that's coming up. That's what he's telling them. And so he's kind of getting to them, hey, buckle up. We're going to make this happen. 10 literal days, it's going to get much worse. And here's the thing. We don't experience this type of persecution here. I mean, they do in other countries, Muslim countries, Christians are killed. Atheistic China, Christians are killed, imprisoned. But here, we don't have that. But, but know this. Today in America, there's some things that we believe as Christians that are very offensive to our culture. The first is this. We believe in Christ alone. We're saying... Jesus is the only way and every other religion is false. Because that's what Jesus says. You know, so we, well, that's offensive in our culture. 
And not only that, Christians all through history have always stood up for the most vulnerable in their culture. Today, that's unborn babies. So Jesus is the only way, our faith in Christ. And then because we stand for life, that's super offensive to a lot of people. And then the third thing is that we teach what the Bible says about human sexuality. Well, that ticks a lot of people off. Heterosexual and every other sexual type of person don't like that, you know. There's restrictions. God's saying the sexual relationship is reserved for two people, a male and female, who are married together. Well, there's a lot of people that don't like that, no matter what their orientation is. And because of those three things, evangelical Christians have already been pushed to the margins of American society today. Just those three things. Jesus is the only way. We stand up for the most vulnerable. Right now, that happens to be unborn babies. And God says this about sexuality. And I think people hate that so much, especially the sexuality thing. You're saying that what I'm doing is wrong. You're saying my lifestyle's wrong. Right, that's what we're saying. But we're not saying that, that we're right and you're wrong. We're saying we've all broken God's standards. We are all, we've all sinned against God. That's just one way. We all sin against God in different ways. That's why Jesus had to come. You know, so what do we say? We say, hey, this is, what the, this is God's standard for every area of our life in the Bible. And none of us have, has kept God's standard. We've all sinned against him. That's why Jesus had to come and die for our sins. So the answer is not to pretend what we're doing is not a sin. That's what our culture wants to do. The answer is to recognize we have broken God's laws and to turn to him for forgiveness. That's why Christ died, to pay our correct penalty for violating God's law like we would expect a righteous judge to punish sin, punish wrong. That's what he does. But Jesus came to pay our punishment so through faith in Christ alone, no other way, we can be made right with God even though we've sinned against him. But I say all that, you know, Christianity's the most inclusive religion in the world. You don't have to be moral to become a believer. Everybody's welcome. And it's the most exclusive religion, but there's only one way through Jesus. And then there's just one thing I need to tell you is when you actually do put your faith in Jesus, God will come in and dismantle your life and cause you to desire to follow him. And that will change things in your life if you're a true believer. All right, let, let me move on from that. So we're, here's, here's, how, here's how persecution's coming to us. It'll come politically. We see that's already happened in places like Canada. In Canada, to say a certain lifestyle is wrong, that's, that's an offense, that's against the law. Can't, can't broadcast that. You know, Michigan's doing some stuff, can't say, it's really just restrictions on speech. Here's what's happening in Ohio, if you want to bring it closer to home. In November, we are, what will be on the ballot is an amendment 
to our Constitution. And the amendment is all about reproductive rights. What, what it'll say is women's health care. So everybody's for women's health, but that's, that's, that's misleading. It's all about reproductive rights. They don't have the final language yet, but I've looked at the drafts that they've come up with so far. It's super far-reaching. It's reproductive rights. It's abortion on demand at any time. There's no restrictions on minors. This will be a constitutional right in Ohio. No restrictions on minors. No parental consent. None of that is in there. And by the way, it doesn't mention women or girls, female. It's anybody, reproductive rights. And it's written that way intentionally to be vague because then that opens the door for not only abortion on demand, but also for all this other uh, sexual reassignment surgeries. Because that's, that's, that of, that's reproduction stuff. And so... It opens the door for all this stuff that minors can get trans-type surgeries, no parental consent, don't have to be 18. It just opens the door for everything, and it is intentionally doing that. And here's the thing. Ohio is one of the weakest states. That caught some of your attention. What, what are you talking about? Why are we... Ohio is one of the weakest states at protecting its constitution. And here's how I mean that, because people will say that different ways. In Ohio, in Ohio, it only takes 50% plus one vote to change the constitution. On July 4th in 1776, there was the Declaration of Independence, which led to all-out war with England. We won that war... And then a few years later, we have the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States has about 7,500 words, the entire Constitution. And why, it, 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 but by the same token, the Constitution of Ohio has 67,000 words, almost 10 times bigger. Why? Because it's so easy to add things. It's just 50%. The Constitution of the United States is only 7,500 words because it takes two-thirds majority to change the Constitution or add to it. But not that way with Ohio. It's one of the weakest states in protecting the original Constitution. Just 50% and a vote. What the, the experts are saying is this amendment in November that's going to embed reproductive rights and open that whole door into Ohio's Constitution, it's going to pass. It's going to pass, number one, because people don't understand what it is. There are, probably, there are probably a bunch of people in this room who signed the, position, the petition in the last few months because women's health. Well, I'm for women's health. But even the people passing out the petition doesn't know what the bill is, that's the, the amendment is, because it's not even finalized. But the drafts right now, it, it's not going to be good. So what can we do about it? That's why there's a special election August 8th. Have you heard about this? So a special election on August 8th, and August 8th is some, you know, there will be a minute percentage of the voters will be out on August 8th. Nobody votes then, typically. 
And something is on the ballot. And what's on the ballot is that we increase the difficulty of changing the Constitution from 50% plus one vote to 60%. Doing that will, will probably will cause this November amendment to fail. So here's what I'm saying. You know, Christians all through history were trying to protect the most vulnerable. Right now, the most vulnerable? Unborn babies. We're also trying to protect children from making permanent decisions about their sexuality that they can't reverse later because there's a bunch of young people now who've come out. They're suppressed by the media, but they've come out and said, look, my counselor, my this, my that, said this was the way to go. I did this, but I don't want to do this anymore, and I can't go back to my original gender. We want to protect kids from that. So you should mark your calendars, August 8th. This is a moral issue. It's all leading up, so August 8th. And so for me, it's yes, on August 8th, go to 60% to change the Constitution of Ohio. And then it will be no in November. So now for a lot of us, we're on vacation in, in August. So for me, it's, oh, when can we early vote? We can early vote, like I marked on my calendar the week of July 11th. I mean, we are right on this. It's time to take action. I'll get off this soapbox, but they, these are moral issues, and all through history, Christians have taken a stand on moral issues. And one more thing. Can I say one more thing? Okay. Because we take these stands, Jesus is the only way. We should protect the most vulnerable among us. You know, because we take stands like that, some people who are against that, they will be against everything we do. That's what we're seeing on the school board. Not, not the school board, they're good, but the people that are talking to the school board. You know, we're trying to do this release time religious education, which has already been approved federally, already been approved by the state, already been approved by our school board in 2016. And then we say, hey, we actually looked at this this year and thought, yeah, we'll just do this as a church. But then, then we started researching a little more and go, oh, we, here's LifeWise. It's a nonprofit. They sort of do this. You know, we'll just join with them and we'll get some other churches with us and we'll implement this in our community. Well, because of that, there's been this backlash, which I don't think it'll affect us. But, but the reason, you know, and a lot of us are, well, this is just, you know, it's voluntary, a, a, a parent has to sign for the child to go. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take a child out of any core classes. You know, what's the deal? Why, why the opposition? Because some people will be against anything we do because of the stands we take. So I so much appreciate those who showed up in support, you know, a week ago on the school board. School board meets every other Monday at 6 o'clock at the junior high school. So... A week from tomorrow, they'll be meeting again. And hey, I think it's a good idea for, for people who care about this issue like LifeWise, that we're allowing this religious release time for religious education, optional for some people, you know, that they be in support of that. So, all right, I, I'm going to move on now, okay? All right, we'll keep going. So, believers in Smyrna expected persecution. You know, they were getting crosswise with the government and everything. That's not us right now, by the way. 
But they're going to persecution. And now Jesus mentions this in the next verse. In verse uh, 10, he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. You should be tested 10 days. We already talked about that. We know how that goes. And so here, here I want to show you something. And he says, Do not fear. And then the second thing he's telling them is, Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Two things. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. And be faithful even to death. He's saying, it's going to get worse. Don't fear and be faithful. And remember, the Christians Smyrna, they know all the apostles have been executed except for John. And he's in exile on a penal colony on an island in Patmos. They get it. That just came with first century Christianity. Remember, here's what Paul said as he was in prison waiting to be killed. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Hey, this is Paul getting ready to die. That just came with it. So what's the letter of Smyrna mean to us? Hey, that we should be willing to die rather than repudiate our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he kind of wraps this section up in verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what does this mean? Hey, Jesus is saying, listen up. And then he's saying, hey, he who overcomes, and overcomes is just all true believers. If you're a true believer, you're going to overcome. In the end, you're going to be okay. God has you. He overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what's the second death? Well, the first death is physical death. And he goes, no, you're going to go under, you'll go through that but you're not going to be hurt by the second death if you're a believer. There's an old saying that describes that. It goes like this. You know, born once, die twice. Born twice, die. You know, if we're born once, we haven't been born again, then we have a physical death, but also spiritual death, meaning that we'll be in hell for eternity as the just punishment of our sins. But if we're born twice, physically been born, but also we've been born again by putting our faith in Christ, then we will only die once because we will not go to eternal judgment. And so that's what he's saying. There's no rebuke for the church in Smyrna. It stands for all time as an example of those who heard the word, believed, and lived out its truth. And that's how we should live. So a couple things as we wrap. Here's how we're not like Smyrna. We're not like Smyrna in that they were poor financially but rich in Christ. We're actually rich financially and if you're a believer, rich in Christ. So that's how we're different. And, you know, we're not being persecuted to death here in America, in Ohio, like they are. We're not persecuted and killed. But here's how we are like Smyrna. We should expect persecution. Expect it to come in the future. 
And then we should do what Jesus says when we expect persecution, and that is do not fear and be faithful. That's what he's calling us to do. Stay committed to Jesus. Keep being faithful to him. And then there's one more thing. We will receive the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. We will receive those crowns in heaven where we will be able to cast them at the feet of Jesus in worship of him. God will never leave us and he'll never forsake us no matter what we're going through. That's what God promises to us. So as we close, we come out, we're going to have another song. And, uh, you know, I get that sometimes in, in the Christian life, we can, we can deviate, we, we can sort of drift from God. And we need to look to Smyrna and say, you know, when the chips get tough, we want to be there. We want to be faithful to Christ because he's been faithful to us. And so if that's you, if you feel like, hey, maybe recently you've been kind of out of touch with God or you've drifted or you need to fan into flame that first love we talked about last time, that commitment to see him all the way through. During this song, as we sing to God, you're welcome to come. We did this second service last time. You know, if you want to come up and pray, you're welcome to do that. You're always welcome to do that. But during this song, as we're singing to God, that would be a good response. And maybe just, just physically moving like that will just help remind you of your commitment to stay faithful to him. But let's stand together and we'll pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for our country, but way more than that, Lord. We thank you for salvation from the right punishment for our sins. And Lord, help us be effective at communicating with the people around us that, that yeah, we're, we're preaching, we're teaching the, whatever the Bible says is sin is sin because that came from God. But we're not saying that, that we're not sinners. We're saying we're all sinners. And Lord, that we need you. We, need, we all need outside help. That's why you allowed your son to come and that he willingly allowed himself to be tortured to death to pay our payment for sin. And Lord, we thank you so much that simply this is a gift offered that we receive through faith. And Father, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ alone, Lord, help us to have the strength to face persecution if it comes in the future and to not fear Lord, and to be faithful. And Lord, for our friends that are among us here, community members or family who's with us, God, we pray that you would draw them, that you would help them figure this out Lord, so they would follow you because they're just like we were. Lord, help them draw them to you. In Christ's name we pray.